0: Thank you and welcome to part two of this series, Transformed Living. We're looking at Ephesians, which I have to say is my favorite book in the Bible. And in the first half, Ephesians 1 to 3, it's a game of two halves. In the first half, Paul's quite theological. He gives this torrent of truth that pours out of him about the amazing things that God has done through Jesus Christ. I often think reading Ephesians 1 to 3, it's so dense and such an incredible torrent. It's like standing under a waterfall. And in our little minds, it's like trying to fill a champagne glass under a waterfall. You, know, you just cannot take it all in, but it's an amazing experience even trying. And then having been very theological, Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul in chapter 4 onwards gets quite practical. So this is what God has done. Ephesians 1 to 3, now this is what we must do in our application of the theology. In other words, Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul turns a corner and says, Therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We are royalty, as Dave said last week, so we need to live like it, live up to our calling. I saw a a biographical piece by Prince Charles, I think in an interview, where he was saying that when, as a prince, he was caught in a misdemeanor or doing something naughty that he shouldn't have, his father would often say to him, this powerful line for a prince, my dear boy, remember who you are. Now, when you're a prince, that's powerful. Come up, live up to your calling. Now, the question for us then is how? How do we live a life worthy of all that God has done for us? Well, chapter 4 to 6 is going to get very practical. It's as if in chapters 1 to 3, Paul says, I've taught you the great theology in church. Now, it's as if Paul is going to come in the back door of our homes, sit down at the kitchen table and say, Now, let's work it out here in the domestic context, husbands and wives, children and parents, in the work context of colleagues and so forth, this is how we are to live out our calling. And there are two great burdens for the Apostle Paul. Number one is unity, and that's particularly the focus in chapter 4. And then number two is purity, that's particularly for chapter 5. So today our focus is on Christian Unity And our memory verse for this week is Ephesians 4, verse three. Perhaps we could say this verse together, loud and clear, as an expression of our unity and an attempt to memorize the verse. Are we ready? Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Could we try that one more time with a little bit more volume? Could we just turn the volume up? Make every effort. To keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now when I read that uh, verse, I think of three observations that lead me to three questions. First observation, Paul is very passionate about Christian unity. Make every effort. So first question, why does Christian unity matter so much? Secondly, I observe that Paul thinks of unity as not something we must create or work up, but as a gift that we have already been given. Keep the unity, he says. So my second question is, what is the basis of Christian unity? And then thirdly, I observe that Paul is expecting us to do something practical off the back of this. So my third question is, how? How can we practically keep the unity of the Spirit? Why, what, and how? Firstly, why? Why does Christian unity matter so much to the Apostle Paul, to God himself? As you get hold of Christian unity, as I've been wrestling and thinking through this message, it's almost as if I initially went to get hold of this subject, almost like it was just a rope, an isolated rope. But as I've begun to pull on this rope, I've realized it wasn't a rope. It was actually an elephant's tail. <laughs> In other words, the subject of Christian unity is not an isolated small topic about how Christians should be nice to one another and sit around a campfire and sing "Come by, Ah, my Lord, or whatever it may be. It's much bigger than that. Christian unity is attached to the whole of Christian theology. Christian unity is attached to the whole purpose of God for creation. Now let me explain what I mean by taking us back to Ephesians 1 verse 10, which I believe Paul gives almost as a keyhole through which we are able to look into the future and answer this question, what is God's ultimate purpose for this world? and everything in it. Ephesians 1 verse 10 simply says this, God's plan for the fullness of time is to bring all things under one head, Christ. The final purpose of God, peer with me through the keyhole, would you, just for a moment, and imagine a world where everything is once more Brought to total harmony because it's all brought back under the one headship of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, even if you're not a Christian today, doesn't that resonate with something in every human heart that we long to see? We long for this divided world to be one. I went to see U2, one of my favorite bands, U2 perform in Cardiff at the Millennium Stadium. There were 80,000 people there, and when you two uh, struck up that amazing song of theirs, One, it's just, I think it's entitled One. You know, One Love, One Blood, One Life. We're one, but we're not the same. You know this song? Come on, you Philistines. Do you know this song? It's a brilliant song. Get with the program. So, anyway, they strike up this song, and 80,000 people are singing it like an anthem of all humanity. It's, It's like this cry, and people were literally crying. Because deep in the human heart, there's a desire to affirm the oneness against all the division. And the reason for this is because the reality that we live in, the world we live in, unfortunately, have you noticed, is not one. It's been divided into two. We frequently experience the problem of two. God made this world to be all brought to unity under his leadership, his headship. But unfortunately, through a rival competitor, the Bible refers to as Satan, a rebellion has been led and introduced to a world that was made for one is the problem of two. Now you've not just got God, but you've got his rival, Satan. Not just good, but evil. Not just angels, but demons. Not just life, but death. Not just heaven, but hell, the problem of two. And that problem has utterly pervaded every inch of this world, more than we realize because we're so used to it. We're used to humanity being divided against itself in two. But the original purpose of God, made expressly clear in Adam and Eve, is that the two should become one. That's a line from Genesis, before the Spice Girls got hold of it, right? The two become one. And it's a symbolic depiction of the absolute unity that God intended for all of creation. Brought to harmony under one head, but we've been fractured into two. Adam turns against Eve. Eve turns against Adam. And when mum and dad start fighting, guess what happens to the children? Chapter 5 of Genesis, Abel is murdered by his brother Cain. And the brotherhood of humanity is broken by the problem of two. Ever since, we are over-familiar with turning on our TV screens and just witnessing the problem of two. Black against white in America at the moment. The utter devastation of Syria and the civil war and factions and splits. And closer to home, even in our politics, as Brexit is worked through, we're just over familiar with the problem of two. And much closer to home, you may live in the problem of two. You may be from one of these, a family, and and it's tragic for you, and it's a great heartache because mum and dad were meant to be one, and they've become two. Siblings that were meant to live as brothers and sisters, now they don't speak to each other. Some things come in between. We're over-familiar, are we not, with a world that suffers from the problem of two. And into that world, as the human heart aches for one, Paul says, well, would you just look with me through the keyhole for a moment? I promise you, God's purpose for the fullness of time, Ephesians 1 verse 10, is that all things will be brought back under one head through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Yeah. What a hope, what a vision for a fractured world to be made harmoniously united again because there's only one head, Jesus Christ. Now this will encompass everything. Notice Paul says, all things. It's true of heaven and earth. One day heaven and earth that currently are two will once again become one. No segregation or separation, but the curtain will be drawn back and there'll be total integration between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm the glory of the lord will fill the whole earth there'll be a nation that the nations of the earth will be one what a day that will be when there is truly a united nations and isaiah chapter 2 gives us a vision of this when he speaks of the nations and says they will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. Outside the United Nations headquarters in New York, there is a statue, a sculpture, depicting a warrior beating beating a sword into a plough. And it's a symbol that, that, that comes from this passage in Isaiah 2 that is written on the mural around this. It is a symbol, symbolic hope that one day the nations of the earth will no longer train for war, but will live in fruitful harmony and unity. Now that will happen when the Prince of Peace makes all wars to cease and there will be a United Nations. And under that governance, under his governance, not only a united nations, but also a united nature. All of nature will be one. Again, we're so used to conflict within the environment, tensions and earthquakes, conflict between humans and animals. Nature, we're so familiar as red in tooth and claw. But a day is coming when there will be harmony running right through every inch of creation. Isaiah 11 depicts this in a glorious vision, a strange vision for us. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the fox with the chickens. It doesn't actually say that, but we, we keep chickens now, and so I'm really hopeful for that because our, chi- our, <laughs> our neighborhood fox has realized that we've got chickens. Anyway, the, the infant will play with the, with the, in the hole of the cobra, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. The whole of creation brought into harmony and unity. Can you imagine a day when parents say to their little child, of course you can go and play with the python, darling. (laughs) Just make sure you wear a coat so you don't catch a cold. You know, what an amazing day. Of course the tiger can can come to tea. Welcome. That's a little book that we read with our children, for those of you who are too old for these things. Anyway, one day, all things, all things will be one under the headship of Jesus Christ. Now that's the keyhole, that's God's promise for the future, but what about the present? Where can we catch a glimpse of one in a world of two? That's the point. (laughs) That's where we come in, folks. The whole purpose of the church is that God in his people now is doing what will be done for everything on that day. Ahead of time, the church is to be a prophetic display of one in a world of two. We are to be a foretaste, a forecast, an advert, an appetizer, a prospectus of the hope of everything because in here there is only one in a world of two. That's our high calling. When Paul says live worthy of your calling, he's got all of that in mind. The church is to be, I like the idea of a prospectus. You know, you may think about buying a new home that's not yet been built, or whatever it may be, and you you may be given a prospectus in which are, if you like, graphics and visuals that say, it will look something like this. Do you want to buy into it? And to a world of two, the whole point of the church is that we are the prospectus. We're able to say, it's going to look something like this. Do you want to buy into it? The hope of God for all things to be reconciled under Christ. Now, that's why Paul is, well, frankly, obsessed that Jew and Gentile must be one. Not two churches, but one church, eating and worshipping and praying together. Why? Well, that's the whole purpose of God, to display the reunification of all things starting in the church. What does he say in Ephesians 2, 14? For Christ himself is our peace. He has, listen... He has made the two into one. That's his point and purpose for the church. That's our holy calling. Whereas out in the world around us, two is a scene of division, black against white. In the church, black and white, we're one, aren't we? Under Christ, those differences don't matter to us. We are one in Jesus. Male and female may be divided in the world, but not in here because we're a prospectus of one. What does Paul say? Galatians 3:28. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Jesus Christ. Now, that is our high calling. We are to live up to the calling to be a prospectus and a display, a prophetic sign now of what is to come for all things. And that's why Paul is so concerned for Christian unity. Here's how Peter O'Brien puts it, commenting on this passage. The church is the pilot project of God's purposes, and his people are the expression of the unity that displays to the universe its final goal and ultimate hope. When we start talking about Christian unity, we think we're getting hold of a rope, and then we realize it's the elephant's tail. Do you understand what I mean now? My relationship with you, with Tony, with Diana, with whoever, it's not just about us folks. This is not some isolated rope. When we have a bit of a tug of war with Christian unity and we divide into two, we're pulling on the elephant's tail there. Don't be surprised that the whole of Christian theology turns around and looks at us and says, what on earth are you doing? You're called to be one. You cannot afford to split into two. It's too big. It's too important for that. The church must be a place where we work through our differences by the grace of the Holy Spirit that we might display one to the whole world. Now, if that wasn't enough, (laughs) that's the why it matters. The second uh, thing that Paul turns to is what is the basis of our unity? And here he sort of picks up the the theological kitchen sink, and sort of throws that at us, namely the doctrine of the Trinity. He wants us to see that our unity, not only if we look through the keyhole, is it the hope of the whole cosmos, but our unity, if we look beneath us, is deeply rooted in the very being and nature of God himself. Paul, therefore, in Ephesians 4, 4-6 pulls together a number of statements, staccato, short statements, each one prefaced with the word one. And he wants here to outline what we all have in common, that we are one. So he says, there is one body, the church, because there is one Holy Spirit. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is one faith and one baptism. There is one God who is father of us all. And what he's doing, you notice, is structuring our oneness around the threeness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, when we take hold of the doctrine of the Trinity, this is not a seminar or a lecture in the doctrine of the Trinity, this is a practical application. It's got two sides to it. The first is that we can emphasize, notice, the diversity or the threeness of God. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, within the very being of God himself, there is difference and distinction and diversity. God is three persons, and yet turn the coin over, and he is one God. There is an absolute unity and harmony, so in the very being of God, the glory of God is this, that he is unity and diversity. He is absolutely one God, yet expressed in three persons. Now here's the point. Paul takes these truths and he says, and the whole idea of us as a church is that we are a reflection and a display of that glory of God for we have been made and recreated in the image and likeness of God. I remember going to the, I think it was the Musee d'Orsay, um, museum in Paris with, uh, with my wife. And I remember uh, as well as the many beautiful artworks on the walls, in one of the rooms, the art was on the ceiling. I think it was a Renaissance artist. They often painted on the ceilings. And one of the problems with this is that you wanted to appreciate the, the art, but it hurt <laughs> to look up for so long, a crook neck. And so what they'd kindly done is they'd positioned strategic mirrors around the room that if you stood by the mirror and looked into the mirror, you captured below the beauty and the glory that was above you. Now, the church, we as a local church are one of God's strategic mirrors placed in our communities to capture down here below something of the glory of God above. In other words, we are to reflect his beauty. And so the two truths of God, unity and diversity, are to be seen in the local church. Firstly, because our God is three, there is diversity, within his church. God is not a single, isolated individual who is committed to uniformity. He's not some McDonald's CEO planting replica outlets around the world. God loves diversity. God loves the glory and the beauty of difference when it's brought into unity and harmony. And therefore, he wants that expressed within his people. Notice Therefore, there is no uniform that you have to work wear to come to church, because we're not into uniformity, we're into unity with diversity. Amen. And notice, if you take a look around you, the extraordinary diversity within, captured within this one church. To quote you too, we're one, but we're not the same. Have you noticed? I was chatting to a chap last week, and in the atrium, called Bibi, who is a French speaker from the Congo who was brought to Kingsgate by Ugandan, and here's me, a British guy, chatting to Bibby, and we are one. We're brothers in Christ, but we're not the same. And God loves that diversity captured in his church. Bibby was saying to me a beautiful thing. He said, I feel at home here. Isn't that a fantastic thing for a French speaker from the Congo brought by Ugandan to say in Peterborough, how can that happen? It's the glory of God in the church. I was chatting to another guy actually, he's a car park attendant and uh, I couldn't understand much of what he was saying because of the sort of language barrier, cultural barrier, but uh, nevertheless we knew as we talked that we are one, brothers in Christ. His name was Gordon actually, he's from Glasgow, Um, and (laughs) hence why I couldn't understand a word he was saying. But we're brothers in Christ, he actually texted me, I said this in the first of he texted me and said, totally offended, never coming again. we're friends. We're brothers in Christ. It was actually a lot easier to understand Bibby from the Congo than Gordon from Glasgow, but but we're all one through Jesus. Now that diversity is within Kingsgate. Have you noticed there's also extraordinary diversity beyond Kingsgate in the global Christian church? Not all churches worship the same. Have you noticed this? And sometimes when you're very used to one style, it can be a bit of a shock to the system to go to a church that's very different. But actually, we want to affirm that our unity is not through the externals of how we worship, the songs that we sing. Our unity is deeper rooted than that in the very being of God himself. We're Christians, not because we all sing the same songs, but because we all serve the same Lord. We're one, but we're not the same. And actually, some of the divisions and differences that seem very important to us may appear different to God from his perspective. The other week, I took my son up Scarfell Pike in the Lake District, a mountain. And if you know the Lake District, you may know it's famous for its dry stone walls. And these walls stretch the length and breadth of the Lakeland fells to mark out the fields for the sheep. And if you think of the walls from a sheep's perspective... They are rather dominant. They dominate the whole landscape. From where a sheep is looking, all they see is the wall that separates them from the other fields. In fact, I, I don't know for sure, I can't prove this, but it's possible that sheep even wonder whether their field is in fact the only field, or at least the only true field that the farmer has, right? But as we ascended Scarfell Pike, we gained a different perspective. Looking down from high up, Actually, those walls were not part of the problem, but part of the beauty. The patchwork quilt of Lakeland fields divided by those walls is overcome from a perspective that's higher, that sees actually the farmer has many fields, but they're all one farm. He has many sheep, but they're really all one flock. And from God's perspective, some of the differences between us as Christians, I think sometimes we just need to gain a higher, more generous view and realize we're one... We're not the same, but we're all Christians. When we can affirm our faith in a minimal Christian orthodoxy, a minimal Christian truth, we can say, well, we're one family through one Father. And that's what Paul comes on to. Because God is three persons, there's diversity. But because God is one, there is unity. We are one. And that's what he turns to. He says, well, given all the diversity... In this church and in the global church, what is it that makes us one? Well, he outlines several truths, as I've said, all beginning with one. There is one spirit, one body, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of us all. And we may worship differently externally, but we are one when we can say that we believe those truths and we hold to them as Christians. Now on that basis then, Christian unity needs to take a two-handed approach. One hand is a closed hand, and the other hand is an open hand. Let me explain what I mean. I think Paul, in Ephesians 4, verse 4 to 6, is giving us the minimal truths that need to go into what I'm calling the closed hand. These are the truths that you can't be a Christian if you don't believe these things, And if you affirm these things, you find a total unity with every other Christian in the one church of our one God. So we affirm in the closed hand that there is one Lord Jesus Christ. There is one Father, and that makes us one family. There is one Holy Spirit who makes us one body. These things are not optional. They're absolutely essential for every Christian to believe. But in the open hand, we can place, if you like, not the primary issues, but the secondary issues. There are other things that are important, but they're not worth fighting and dividing over. We may differ on worship styles, but we're not going to pick a fight about it. We may differ on the age of the earth and the exact way that God created things, but we're not going to pick a fight over it. We may differ on gender roles, we may differ on the specific understanding of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. But these are things we can hold in the open hand, affirming instead that our unity is rooted deeper than those things in our God himself. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now as Christians, unity is crucial when we get the right things in the right hands. We must not take things out of the closed hand and put them in the open hand as if they're optional. There is one Lord Jesus Christ, and that's not up for discussion. (laughs) There is one way to be saved, and it's to call on his name. But equally, we must not take things from the open hand and put them in the closed hand as if they are of first importance. I was reading, uh, there there was an event in, in church history in 1054 AD called the Great Schism, which as the name suggests, it was the moment when the Western Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church formally excommunicated each other and went their separate ways. Now, among many reasons given for dividing, one of the reasons that the Catholic Church gave for dividing against the Orthodox is because the Orthodox priests had beards. And the Catholic Church were convinced that real priests wouldn't have beards. Now I, my point is this: Can we agree that we put stubble in the open hand, right? Yeah. Not in the closed hand. Yeah. You may or may not like beards, but come on, let's not pick a fight over it. There's more important that the things that we can unite on are much greater than the things we might divide over. Or as Saint Augustine put it, in the essentials, in the essentials, unity; in the non-essentials, liberty and in all things love that's the basis of our christian unity now as a result i've put together a paraphrase of these one statement statements of one that the apostle paul outlines in ephesians 44 to so 6 i thought we could say them together perhaps they could appear on the screen and we can say together these truths Whatever our differences, can we speak these over every division, every denomination, every difference among us? We are one if we can affirm these things together. Amen? So let's say together We share the one Holy Spirit, so we are one body. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, so we are one people. We belong to one Father God, so we are one family. That is the basis of our Christian unity. Now having shown us why it matters so much, peering through the keyhole, and having allowed us to see ourselves as a mirror of the unity and diversity of God himself, deeply rooted in in God's eternal being, Paul then turns very practically to say, given how precious this whole thing is, how can we keep the unity that we've been given? Very practically now, I imagine Paul almost giving to the church, giving to us an incredibly valuable item, maybe a vase or an expensive piece of furniture, and it's as if as we're about to take it away, he shouts after us, be very careful with that, you know, that's worth a lot of money, take extra care, mind your step now. When we hold Christian unity, when we manage our relationships together, we're involved in something incredibly precious. This is not just an isolated rope, you and me. This is the elephant's tail. It's all captured in how we are one. So we need to be very careful. And two things Paul outlines. The first is, be completely humble. He says that's one of the ways to take good care of Christian unity. Be completely humble. Remember that pride so often is the wedge that comes in to drive apart those who should be one. It's when I dig my heels in. It's when I start digging my fortified trenches of position by justifying my actions and telling other people how terrible you've been to me and as I do this all the time I'm digging myself in to defend my position. That's just pride, isn't it? We can't afford that kind of pride. We're called to display one to the world. We can't dig trenches we need to be completely humble. We need to get down on our knees like the head of all things, Jesus Christ, who got down on his knees to wash our feet. We need to join him in acts of humility that says, hey, I may have been offended, but with God's help, I'm going to get through that offense. I am not going to allow two when we are called to be one. I may have been hurt. My rights may have been abused, but hey... We all have one Father, one Lord, and one Spirit. I think we're bigger than that. I think what we have in common is greater than the things that currently divide us. I refuse to settle for two. Let us be one. Yes, amen. Now, when we see the, the this perspective of this passage, one of the things I wanted to achieve today is to show us the big picture, almost to take you up the mountain with the Apostle Paul and say, see what it looks like from here. Halfway up Scarfell Pike, we sat down for a breather. And as we looked back to where we'd come, you could still see the road and the cars moving along it just now about 2,000 feet beneath us. And as we watched, it was a beautiful scene because we had this incredible vision and the cars, they looked like toy cars. Have you ever had this experience? Everything looks so dinky and toy-like. And then as we watched, two cars moved down the single track road and arrived in front of each other and stopped. And both drivers within these cars obviously refused to reverse to the, par- to the passing place. So way above, uh, with, us, with us way above, we looked down on this scene of two, of division, of tension. And it was comical. I have to say, one of them beeped their horn and we laughed. Because the sound of it, it was so trivial when you're watching it from up here. Some of us may be in that kind of standoff. We've allowed two to creep in. We've refused to reverse or to apologize. And when we're locked in to our rights, we're stuck in our little car and our little issue. I hope today I've led you up the mountain to say, it's a bit bigger up here, folks. (laughs) Take a look at this and then decide whether you might be able to reverse or not. Come on, let's come through some of the things that can divide us to affirm today we are united in Christ. We will not settle for two. We will be completely humble. And secondly, Paul says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. What he's really saying literally could read, put up with one another. Don't walk away from difficult situations. Don't walk off and form two Bear with one another, show patience to stay as one. Don't allow segregation. You sit that side, I'll sit this side, and let's not talk to it. No, no, we've got to come through to a place where our unity means something. And that requires some patience, some bearing with one another. That's true in the church. It's probably also true in the home, isn't it? Husbands and wives, siblings, parents and children, bear with one another, show some patience that the oneness may be preserved to the glory of God. And in this context, Paul divulges his status as he writes. He says, I, a prisoner in the Lord. Now, he could have told us that at the beginning of the book. We're now halfway through. Why is he saying this now? Well, I think he wants to draw on his status as a prisoner almost as a model for all of us. He's saying this, I think. He's saying, look, I, where, from where I'm sitting, I am captive. I'm constrained. There are certain things I can't do. And I want us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And that means there are certain things I can't do. My hands are tied because I'm so committed to a vision of one, I will not gossip and create two. I I just can't do that. I'm constrained by something far more important. Because of the vision of unity, I'm not going to sow seeds of division. I'm not going to criticize and slander. I'm not going to post on social media deliberately divisive and factious comments. I can't do that. I'm a prisoner in the Lord, captive to a greater vision. And I refuse to be an instrument of one. Uh, Sorry, I refuse to introduce two. I will be a peacemaker who brings things to one. That this church might continue to be a great prospectus for the hope of the whole cosmos. A vision through the keyhole of all that God will do for humanity. That is our calling. And Paul says, I urge you then, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now wherever you're watching in all of our locations, I hope you would join me at this point. In a moment, in standing up as a sign of saying, I'm standing in Christian unity, despite the differences and annoyances and things that have offended me or differences we might debate over open hand, I'm standing for the things in the closed hands, standing for Christian unity. And as I stand, I'm saying, I will be a prisoner in the Lord, someone who is held captive to a vision of one, and I will not be an agent of two. If you want to join me with that great affirmation, would you stand? And I'd like to pray over us as we conclude. Wherever you're watching, why not stand with us? Christian unity expressed as we stand together. And I want to pray over us the prayer that Jesus himself prayed, praying that we will be an answer to this prayer. He prays that we might be one. So listen to this prayer and let it resonate with our hearts. I pray, Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through the message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And all God's people said, Amen.